Welcome to FCC 7. In this episode, which is all about FCC and the securities industry, we listen to a conversation between Luke Moran and Jim Fries. Jim has an enormous experience in FCC, as a former head of FinCEN, the Financial Intelligence Unit of the U.S., and then later as Chief Compliance Officer for Deutsche Börse Group in Germany. Jim brings a unique perspective on financial crime compliance. He combines experiences from public and private sectors, has been working for incumbent and disruptor companies, and has been operating both in the U.S. and in Europe. In their chat, Luke and Jim explore the many facets of FCC in the securities domain, from how screening and monitoring securities transactions is different from payments, to how regulations may evolve, and how the emergence of crypto could influence the industry's future. To kick off the conversation, they start by looking at how securities are different from payments, and how the complexity of securities transactions makes it harder to define effective financial crime policies. The first voice you'll hear is Luke, then Jim. Let's start by looking at the key similarities and differences between the securities and the payment industries in terms of financial crime compliance. Historically, we have seen a lot of focus on payments and more specifically with banks. Things seem to evolve, though, with more focus on securities players. What is your perspective on this? It's a natural evolution. Everyone understands, from from individuals to financial professionals, understand some aspects of payments. Maybe not how they work, but that payments need to be made. Securities are much more complicated. When you think of the very notion of what is a security, people might start with the aspects of equity in a company. But there's only a little over 40,000 companies globally that actually have publicly traded securities. Add on to that debt securities, bonds of all aspects, indices or combinations of the foregoing in the millions, securitized products, payment streams, whether it be related to residential mortgage or trade-based financing, flows. The world of securities is so much more complex than that of the notion of payments. And that's part of the reason why the aspect of thinking about how it can be abused, misused, how we can better mitigate risks there is still an evolving field. On the payment side, uh, a lot of focus now is on on real-time payments. Uh, which of course comes with its own challenges. How does that translate from a securities perspective? How how do you look at that? So the market demand and the consumer demand is, as you say, increasingly towards real-time payments or real-time settlement, as we would more talk about it in the securities aspect. Think of the notion of high-speed trading that can be algorithmically driven or can be driven by arbitrage opportunities or trying to interpret how a macro development, change in interest rates, or a micro development, such as a competitor getting a new patent or a rollout of a new product might impact another prices. You want to be one of the first to trade. So that's a fundamental aspect in terms of locking in a price in the securities side. But the securities markets 
fundamentally, at least the basic securities markets when we talk about equity and debt securities, are settling on a T plus two basis in most countries. And that 48 hours, let's call it, is eons away from what we talk about real-time payments. And in fact, you can have securities move economic hands being retraded, resold multiple times before they would ever make it through a settlement cycle. So it's really a fundamental difference as to where we are right now. We we talked about T plus two. Do you see, do you expect resistance towards you know faster settlement? One of the reasons why there's industry resistance to moving forward from a T plus two settlement cycle to even a T plus one settlement cycle historically it was driven by the fact that securities, the paper was physically delivered in T plus three or longer. But now a big part of it is actually reconciling internal records and avoiding mistakes, including avoiding mistakes of fraud. Same issue that we see in real-time payments. Once the transaction is finished, the value is moved, it's very hard to get that back. So it's much easier to take time to evaluate the risk, whether it's a risk of error or it's a risk of fraud or of some other financial crime risk to the parties involved before you're finalized that transaction. Beyond the differences that we already talked about, Jim, what else do you see as big differences between payments and securities? When we look at payments, the relationship between the parties only lasts as long as the transaction is moving through. And so when we move to real-time payments, that means that relationship is much shorter. This is fundamentally different in the securities industry because you have the aspect of purchasing and selling securities. So that has a transactional aspect. But then you also have the holding of a security. Think of the 30-year bond. Someone or multiple people will hold on to that security for that 30-year lifetime. And during that 30-year lifetime, you have not only the individual purchase and sale when they take first control of that economic interest, but you have coupon payments. So you have other financial flows. If you have some type of a conversion, a change in the rights, whether an equity or a convertible debt instrument, you may exercise voting rights in the course of those uh, securities lifetime. So it becomes a repeat player relationship. So indeed, you mentioned time horizon as a key difference. That that absolutely is, is true. Something else I could see is that we saw a lot of concerns on the uh, on the banking space and the payment space linked to correspondent banking that is different in the securities industry the securities industry also works in a type of correspondent banking in that the securities from the issuer through the central securities depository the first custodian will then have economic interest sold to a subcustodian maybe uh, fund, and then ultimate investors. So you can have multiple different parties in this chain. For our payments, we can generally think of one chain 
with multiple sides. With the securities industry, it's chains of chains, much more complicated relationship. When speaking about financial crime compliance, one typically talks about three main areas. The first is know your customer and client onboarding. The second is transaction screening. And finally, the third one is transaction monitoring. Let's start with know your customer and client onboarding. How should I ideally handle this process if I'm a pure play securities player like an asset manager or a custodian? Securities players are subject to essentially those same requirements as banks are, whether they are organized by as a bank or a different type of licensed securities intermediary. As you say, the KYC in a type of screening and monitoring. These, however, are areas of responsibilities that actually pre-existed much of the focus in the banking side. The notion of KYC is intimately associated in the securities industry with fiduciary responsibilities and making sure that you're selling suitable products to your customer. So you have to know that customer's risk tolerance and their needs fundamentally. I, as a regulator and in the industry, would always like to say you want to know your customer to be able to serve them and have a good customer relationship. The screening activity fundamentally is related to that in the payments when we're talking about screening against adverse names and and various risk lists. The monitoring is, I think, the one where we need to think about things in different ways and really understand more about the details of the securities industry. Because if someone were to come to you as a payments professional and give the reason for the payments to say it's related to a securities transaction, you might think that's good enough, but you would be wrong because that would be only the beginning of your analysis in terms of what was the basis and the reason behind the securities transaction. Let's now get in the more debated area of transaction screening. Omnibus accounts are often used in the securities industry for efficiency reasons. This makes the identification of the underlying parties more challenging. Some even say that there is therefore little point in screening securities transactions. So how should we go about screening securities transactions? So in securities transactions, again, we have to differentiate what are the types of transactions that we're talking about. It is true that when we're talking about entering into a securities position, so-called a purchase here, or a sale of securities, you might have relatively limited additional information beyond that, what you have on the payment side. But in the lifetime of a securities relationship, you could actually have much more information. So give you a specific example of that. Let's say that there is a corporate action that requires a shareholder vote with respect to a change in the share issuing company. 
that information is usually or that decision is usually not made at the first intermediary. They actually pass that information down through a chain of intermediaries to the end owners. And some of the responsive information comes back through that chain of owners. So through that exercise of voting rights, you will get more information of the economic interests and the parties involved than you actually received in either the purchase or the sale of the transaction. Jim, you, you just use lifetime. It's a nice transition to my next question on transaction monitoring. Are there similar expectations than in payments in terms of monitoring sets of transactions linked to a specific party or clients to detect possible money laundering issues? And how players do typically do that? So there are different typologies as to how you can abuse securities and securities transactions as opposed to aspects of payments transactions. One aspect to start with when you speak of financial crime is that payments, we often focus on the proceeds of crime and in terrorist financing, the use to which assets are being uh, put, meaning funds being moved for potential terrorist acts. In the security side, the starting point for financial crime is fraud in the securities transaction. Selling a customer uh, electronic version of a piece of paper that has no value or misrepresenting what that value is. So already the securities transaction involves the financial crime, and then we can track how the funds are, are moved or the value is moved. But on the other hand, you also have the situation where the proceeds of crime are invested in the securities markets. Put another way, criminals might hold their assets in securities portfolios as well. So you need to have an understanding of what those different typologies are. You are making a very good point. Many people would think of, you know, what to do and monitoring the proceeds of those securities transactions, but, but actually there, there are many other aspects to, uh, to look at. Another key typology that you have in the securities industry and one of the focus of securities regulation is market manipulation that someone will have a dominant position or an information advantage over other parties that they then take advantage of that creates a type of zero-sum game that they benefit at the expense of other parties in the industry and that's something that is a fundamental aspect of the monitoring focus for securities related typologies. So we, we talked about know your customer, transaction screening and monitoring. If you were to pick one area where you expect the highest regulatory focus in the years to come, which one would it be and why? I would say definitely the area of the greatest focus has to be the monitoring because setting aside individual typologies the most valuable aspect of professionals in an industry closely monitoring what's happening is that they're able to identify things that just fundamentally don't make economic sense overall or don't make sense for the particular parties and positions if we talk about securities involved 
that's where they add the most value. And this is an aspect where the advanced systems that we have will bring out anomalies. So when I say something doesn't make sense for those parties, a lot of that is transaction history or can be peer comparisons, things that the systems can do in a very good way. But ultimately, when you have anomalies, you still need individuals to interpret them. And the more that you have people that proactively look into what's going on in the markets and are trying to move their business forward in terms of evolving opportunities, challenges, and potential to gain value through the markets, they also should be able to spot things that don't make sense. Let's now talk about collaboration opportunities. On the payment side, the industry got itself organized to work together on financial crime compliance and develop best practices. The Wolfsburg Group is a good example of such a successful industry initiative for standardization. What is the situation on the security side? Are there similar industry initiatives? I'm aware of the ISA, the International Security Services Association, as an example that has been quite active. Are there others? The ISA initiative, the International Securities Services Association, creating best practices and principles for financial crimes compliance was really a breakthrough initiative by an industry association that has the broadest global remit, specifically on the custodian side. So let's call that the top of the chain in the securities industry and where you have some of the greatest concentration. So therefore, the broadest impact uh, across the global market participants. And that effort started back in 2014, really was amazing in how much the different parties came together and saw that there was a need to do something to define common standards, particularly in a cross-border situation. Why, why do I emphasize that? Because regulations or, or rules fundamentally can only be implemented within a jurisdictional area. Even if we talk within Europe at the EU level, that doesn't include things that go beyond the EU borders. So to work on this in a true cross-border framework was really groundbreaking. And the biggest challenge is now to cascade further down the chain from the largest wholesale players to now the different distribution networks, including the funds industry that are still more at the retail level. So again, critical to have industry initiatives. I should also say that the ISA initiative built on the Wolfsburg Group framework, including the existing due diligence framework, to then make it more specific to the securities industry, but not duplicate it. So it's a great aspect of an industry effort identifying the risks and coming out with practical ways to move together to mitigate those risks. Very good example of, of industry collaboration, uh, Jim. And, and looking forward, are there other areas where you see opportunities for the industry to work together? There are always opportunities for the industry to work together. And I think one of the aspects that will challenge all of us going forward 
is as we look more to the notion of disintermediation, an aspect of decentralized finance. Do we truly need all the intermediaries that have historically grown up in the financial services industry? Or are we moving more to a P2P type framework as we talk about the potential in the payments industry? There have also been attempts to do that in the securities industry. For instance, a couple of years ago, initial coin offerings were all in the rage. Why do we need to issue securities, the traditional markets, have them traded on a stock exchange using brokers or funds if we could have a coin product that could be issued on a distributed ledger? What we found as a reaction is that some of the same risks in the historical securities industry were also present in those products. And as part of a functional regulation, coin products uh, and some crypto assets fall under the securities laws or the related commodities laws. So I think this will be an aspect where the industry, the traditional financial services player, and the challengers will also need to come together to show what is innovative and value adding, as well as aspects where there might be innovation, but is still subject to some of the same risks and therefore should fall under the same regulatory framework.